have a lot more notes and clarity on what I was going to actually share today and I don't know, the week and sickness and life kind of had other plans. Um, but I was struck by this this week where one of the places where Paul is writing to the Ephesians and he's saying, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. For this reason, I'm praying for you. And I was amazed. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And whenever we read that, it's to him be glory. Like in Christ Jesus, that makes sense to us. But to him be glory in the church. It's like God actually wants to be glorified in the church. He wants to be glorified by the way that we are his church. What we display to the world. He wants to be glorified by it. But to do that... Like we've been saying, going through the Sermon on the Mount, we actually have to be the salt and the light. We have to be who God's called us to be. We have to be from the inside out. It's no point doing it from hard work and effort on the external and trying to pretend and trying to pretend like we're good people and accusing other people and like showing, I don't know, we always had the, growing up, you had the stiltakak and then you had the, your church best and you, that would be the day you'd get dressed up the most and there's something beautiful about it and honoring to, to God to actually get dressed up and to come and dedicate our time to Him and honor Him in that way. But there's also this pretense that can come with it that we start trying to perform and show that we are good and show that we measure up. Where on the inside, we're actually not living like that. Actually, day to day, we're not, we're not honoring God. Day to day, we're not actually loving Him and living it. And we want to try and close that gap. And that's what we're talking about today. So we, we're getting to quite a, I don't know, the meaty end of like the Sermon on the Mount where it starts, Jesus starts like applying it and he ta starts taking it home. He started off by saying, this is the good life. This is what is actually kingdom life. And it might be contrary to the ways of the world, but it's like, this is what's blessed in our kingdom. As blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are those that seek God. And then he says, actually, I'm going to upturn, like, turn the, the law almost like up to like 100. And he's going to say, I'm going to require you to do this and to live like this and to live with a law of Christ and a law of liberty, a law of freedom, because it's actually a law that's inside of us and it's written on our heart. So he's saying that and then he shows us how to do it by not putting on a big show of how, how generous we are and not putting on a big show by praying publicly. Not that that would seem that impressive nowadays. But in that day and age, it's like it was something that was respected. It's like I've been in a church where that was the case, where the person who would pray the loudest and like that, that was the person. Now, clearly, they really know God. They must be serious about God because you can really pray really well. And maybe it's true, but I would rather pray confidently and wholeheartedly in private then put on our WhatsApp group of saying, hey, I'm praying for you, and then not pray. I'd rather not say I'm praying and actually pray, and then it might not seem as impressive, but actually you're praying. That's, that's the, the thing that really matters. And we, we do all of this because we want to, to measure up. I was reminded of a story. 
Um, I wasn't the best sportsman at school. Still not the best sportsman in the world, but I try and chase after Tristan and managed to get some bruised ribs thanks to him playing squash with him. Um, but I've somewhat recovered this morning. But I was reminded of like when I was in, it was back in that day, it was standard six or now like grade eight. We also called it form one. I was in the Glen High School and we had, we basically started like a hockey team. And I'd played one or two years in Glen Stancher, so I basically knew how to hold the hockey stick. That was my level of like brilliance. But that put me way ahead of everybody else in the team. So I turned out like, in primary school, I was the goalkeeper because it's like, well, we can't really use you that much anywhere else. <laughs> Going goal, at least you can put some pads on and people can like hit the ball at you and hopefully you get in the way. But because I could hold the stick in the right way, I became the star player in like the, the new team. So the coach is like, he's got the opportunity to send guys to Northern's tryouts. He's like, are you clearly the best we've got? Do you want to go? I'm like, yeah, cool. So I went to my Northern's tryouts and it was my one claim to fame of getting to go and try out for like, but I wasn't good enough. I wasn't fit enough. I, I mean, I played and I had fun and I was hopeful, but nothing ever came of it. And it was my, just like a reality check where I went from being the worst or like an average player, like starting in primary school. Then suddenly I was supposedly the best player. And then I didn't actually measure up. And I was thinking like, there's that longing inside of us to, to show that we, we can measure up and we're better than this person and we're worse than this. And it's like, actually, I can do it. And I want that recognition that I actually, I'm counted worthy. I've been weighed, I've been measured, and actually, I'm, I'm, I'm worthy. And there's that di- desire inside of us. And then I was thinking, like, has anybody here ever failed anything? Subject, a year. Been... been <laughs> been rejected by somebody, been turned down, like asking somebody out. Um, yeah, Warren's, Warren's <laughs> nodding. <laughs> okay. But where it's like, actually, we've been judged to be unworthy. It's like there's something of us actually not measuring up. And inside of us, that desire is there because we know we don't measure up, but we, we want to. We want to be accepted. We want to be loved. And then we also know that we've actually sometimes done things wrong. And because of that, there's a desire inside of us for the mercy, like to actually cover over where we fall short. There's an innate desire inside of us to be, to be covered over. And then at the same time, has anybody ever been really wronged? Been stolen from, cheated on, abused, somebody like that you really know has been hurt in many, many ways. That, that gets a desire inside of us for justice. We want possibly even vengeance where it's like that, that desire for justice coupled with our sinfulness and like desire for retribution overflows into that vengeance and a, a, a temptation to judge and to be the ultimate judge and to say, actually, that person is deserving of this punishment and I'm going to inflict it on them. It might even just be in a relationship where it's like, I'm doing everything I need to, you're not, so I'm going to hold you accountable to it. I'm going to to judge you in that situation, and I'm going to render a verdict on you that actually you have not made the grade. You've been weighed, you've been measured, and you've been found wanting. That 
desire inside of us is for that. It's like there's a good desire. It's like I actually want you to realize that there's a good reason for us to long for justice. When we've been wronged, there's, a, there's a, almost a holy desire for justice inside of us. But we know that our understanding and our interpretation, our level of information and understanding of all of the facts is flawed. So we need to be cautious when we're judging. Anyway, I was reminded of uh, a movie, <laughs> just for a change. It's not Lord of the Rings. <laughs> but that, that statement, you have been weighed, you have been measured, and you have been found wanting. So Knight's Tale, yes. <laughs> and it's like, I actually, I was thinking of, like, my favorite character in that whole movie is actually, um, I've got Chaucer. It's like, he's the, the announcer, he's... <laughs> He's like, man, I don't want to waste your time. He's like, lords and ladies, I want to introduce you to like Sir Ulrich von Lichtenstein. And then later he's like, Sir William. And there's something inside of that movie, especially the young ladies are really keen on that movie. I think Heath Ledger has something to do with it. But I, I loved that movie when I was growing up. And I still do. Because there's, there's a story inside there of a young like stable tan in a sense, like he's an assistant, but there's a desire for nobility. There's a desire for him to measure up, to have the right papers, to be a knight and to compete and to, to actually win the day. And there's that desire inside of all of us and then to be loved by somebody like that and somebody to actually fight for us in the movie is actually challenged to, to lose for the sake of like winning the heart of the lady, where she's like, yeah, it's easy to win for me. Everybody wants to win. So you're not actually winning for me. What would show your desire for me is actually, will you lose for me? Will you lay down your right to win for the sake of winning the part of the bride? And it's like there's a, there's a powerful motive inside of there or an analogy because it fits with our desire for, for longing, for love, to measure up desire to be noble, desire to, to win the heart of a bride, the des, like young ladies, a desire for somebody to love us like that, to be won over, to be, man, there's just a, a, a tapping into all of the heart-like desires that we have as a part of that story, to be weighed and to be measured and to be found worthy. So let's read some Bible. Because in the Sermon on the Mount, we've got into this passage. It's one of the most quoted verses in the Bible and probably the most misunderstood. So it's, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now that first part especially, do not judge and you will not be judged, is one of the most quoted verses by people specifically that don't come to church. Because you're saying, it's like, man, I've learned one verse in the Bible, and it gets me a Get out of jail free card for anything that I'm doing. Especially in like a postmodern world where everything is relativistic. It's like, man, even Jesus was a postmodernist. He's saying, like, man, all truth is relative. You can't judge. You don't actually know. He's not saying that. 
And he's also not saying that like, man, if I don't judge, then at least God won't judge me. Because he says like, judge not and you will not be judged. So it's like, actually, if I'm not judgmental, then it gets me off the hook one day. It doesn't. What Jesus is saying here is actually, how do we build a community? How do we relate to other people? How do we start connecting everything that he has said in the sermon up till now? And how do we start relating to other people? How do we look at them and show them what we, the vision that we have seen and the, the difference to where they are? And he says, don't go into it judgmentally. I'm going to read in Mark and Luke. It has similar, similar passages about the same verse. And it helps like, clarify what he's actually saying. So Mark 4, verse 21 to 25. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Now it seems to be adding a different thing, but it's actually saying the way that you approach people is how they're going to start treating you. So if you come into a community, into a church, if we start practicing very judgmental ways, where we start criticizing other people, that's going to reflect back to us but if we come in and we're generous and we're encouraging and we actually say yes you know what Barry well done yesterday you were incredible I, I love the way that you shared God's word I love the way you were you were vulnerable you loved people man I love the way that you guys made coffee this morning thank you for getting up and coming and serving us or we can come and say like yes you know what that milk was a bit hot those beans were a bit like over extracted you could have done better you guys could have been here earlier. Hey, you know what? Like, actually, you could have done this. You could have... But if we create a culture where we're actually criticizing, it becomes a critical culture. If you create a culture where we are generous with our words, with our encouragement, it creates that feedback loop. We know that whatever we sow, we reap. There's a generosity of our words will lead to a generosity of like our vision for each other. And then Luke 6, it says, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. If we create a culture where you actually just forgive, and you overlook every sleight of hand, every comment, every, it's like actually it softens people. Even if they're like a, a, a soft word turns away like anger. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your lap. That was one of my mom's favorite verses when we were growing up. <laughs> For with a measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the, out the speck that is in your brother's eye. So he's not saying you never say anything. He's not saying you don't notice the speck. He's just saying clean up your heart first. Clean up your eye first. We are called to be disciples we are called to be transformed. We're called to actually lead each other. 
He uses the example of the blind eating the blind. It's, it's all related. We're actually supposed to be people that care for each other. We're supposed to be people that actually notice what's happening. Because it's, like it's easy to say, oh, don't, don't judge me. But we're called to be spiritual people. Where is this? 1 Corinthians um, 2, verse 14 to 16. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. We are called to be judgmental, as bad as that sounds. But we're called to be discerning about everything. Whatever we value, whatever we have as an ideal, is going to be a judge. We're going to have whatever you value in life. It's, it's one thing to say, ah, oh, don't be judgmental. But we've seen it in the world. It's like the people that say that are the most judgmental. At the moment, the, the most intolerant people are the ones that are saying tolerance. We have to tolerate everything, but you can't disagree with me. So you have to be tolerant of everything, but you have to be tolerant in the way that I want you to be tolerant. And you have to accept everything. But tolerance is actually, we need to, to have a standard. We have to have a high standard, but then like a low ego. I was thinking, because this whole thing is saying, don't want to be a hypocrite. So there's three ways I figured to, to not be a hypocrite. One is to be perfect. I, I can't do that. <laughs> Two is we just lower the standard. We do away with any standard. So then it, everything goes. Because then, then you're not going to be a hypocrite. Then everybody's allowed to just be terrible. But if we're going to have a standard, I think that the gracious way is to hold a really high standard with a really low ego. And that's just us being honest. So our standard is Christ. But we realize we don't measure up in and of ourselves. We get the righteousness of Christ given to us. And then that creates that environment I've spoken about where it's actually there's a safety where we can allow our warts to be exposed by God and by those around us, not in a critical, harsh way, but actually we lovingly say, you know what, the way that we reacted there was not great. Let's learn to actually mature and be better. You know what, I'm sorry for the way that I spoke to you guys or preached to you guys. Actually, I want to learn to love more. You know, the, the, when you went through that hard time and I wasn't there, Actually, I want to be there next time. You know what? Like, I, I didn't appreciate the way that you spoke to me. Like, can we actually learn to, to carry each other and love each other? And we learn to be gracious with our language because that's the, the only thing that actually matters is how do you treat people that don't hold your ideal? So everybody's got an ideal. doesn't matter what it is. Different religions, different political like philosophies. But how do you treat people that are outside of you? How do you treat people that differ from you? Is there a way that you can actually be gracious to them and welcome them in to a better way of life? I think the, the fascinating part about this is like verse 6, where a lot of commentators actually say, this doesn't seem like it fits. It's like, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. It's basically saying careful with your wisdom, careful with your knowledge, careful with your words of encouragement or challenge. 
because don't give your pearls to pigs. They just kind of trample them underfoot. And don't give your advice to, to dogs because they're going to try and bite you. It sounds harsh when, you, when you're saying that to, other, to, to people. But it's basically a saying, whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. And whoever reproves the wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. So it's saying actually be wise in the way that we instruct and encourage and challenge each other. It's going to take wisdom. There's no blanket statement where it's like, okay, we never judge. We never bring correction. We never, like, the reality is we need to bring correction into our life. We need correction in church. We need to be challenged. That's the only way that we can actually grow. I was chatting to Patrick this week and the reality is I think there's only one shortcut in the walk with God. And that's actually pursuing God's ways. The only shortcut is actually understanding God's word so that you can be challenged by the word before you get challenged by life. Because if you confront your selfishness because of what the word says to you, you're confronted by it and it's like, you know what? I need to grow. I need to be more like Christ. Then when you're challenged in your marriage, when you're challenged at the office, you've got a capacity to know that actually I'm sinful, but I'm loved and I've been transformed. So that when you're confronted with that, you can respond with grace. You can respond with forgiveness. You can respond coolly and calmly. You don't have to react and you don't have to be knocked by the ways of the world. I think that in church we've been, we've been sold like this, this perfect life. That it's like you come to Jesus and then everything's going to be plain sailing. And there's truth to, to that. That it's like, man, you come to Jesus and your eternity is secured. There's freedom. There's assurance. There's like your eternity is sealed. But we're still going to face challenges here. And if we don't have a theology that helps us understand that. If we don't have a capacity to, to say, you know what? This life is still going to be a challenge, but I can overcome it with God. And I can overcome it because I'm being trained and I've been strengthened. Then when challenges come, we can actually handle them. Like Paul's ultimate way of approaching this is he actually says, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Or in James, it talks about where mercy triumphs over judgment. So Paul says, it's like he's, he's not acquitted because he's doing the right thing. We're not like, like immune to judgment because I'm doing the right thing. Well, you can't judge me because I believe I'm in the right so we, we can look at that and we can try and do everything we can right. But the reality is God's going to judge by a completely different standard. He is the judge. I want you guys to remember just one story where, I don't know if you guys know the handwriting on the wall, like King Belshazzar in Daniel 5, where, you know, the, the, the statement, like the writing is on the wall. When you get to the end of a game or end of a sports match, and it's like you, you know who's going to win. You know the outcome because the writing's on the wall. It comes from this story. So King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of a thousand. 
Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the golden vessels that had taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the kings and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood and stone. It's like while they're drinking, they're taking what was supposed to be meant for God. And they're celebrating just the ways of the world, the gold and the silver. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand and as it wrote, the king's color changed and his thought alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in. But they could not read the writing and make known to the king the interpretation. I was thinking, it's like Humpty Dumpty. It's like all the king's men and all the, it's like they couldn't figure it out. So they had to call Daniel in. And Daniel comes in and he says, the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Then from his presence, the hand was sent. And this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Peres, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. He's just given the king the worst news in the world and he still honors him and he makes him the third, like highest in the name. That very night, Belshazzar, the, ki- the Chaldean king, was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. So it's this king who's on top of the world. He's got everything going for him and he dishonors God. And by, by putting the ways of the world first, he actually runs out of like his own time. God weighs him up and he measures it up and he actually displays it like the writing is on the wall of actually your kingdom is done. Your days have been numbered and they're coming to an end. Your kingdom is going to be taken from you and given to everybody else. And then he says, actually, you've been weighed. You have been measured and you've been found wanting. In a moment like that, God can actually put the writing on the wall and it's done. And all of that just reminded me of like the other time where we, where we have in John 8, where the lady is drawn out and she's been caught in adultery and brought before Jesus and says like, okay, so what are you going to say now? Are you going to judge her? Because she deserves to be judged. She's done something that's completely contrary to the law. How do you bring judgment here? Are you going to stand and say, oh, judge not, you won't be judged. It's like, I'm not going to judge but he actually says, like, my mercy is going to triumph over judgment. So he bends down and he writes in the sand. And it's like, I think there's a picture of that. It's like, actually, the writing's on the wall. It doesn't tell us what Jesus wrote. But there's something of him. Just actually, I'm going to write. And like, it's a reminder of that story of actually, what if the judgment comes? 
Have you been weighed? Have you been measured? What is the outcome going to be? Because he says, then he who is without sin cast the first stone. And they realize, actually, if I stand up to scrutiny, if I stand up to judgment, I'm going to fall short. So they all walk away. And Jesus says to her, okay, now go, sin no more. And the last one, in Hebrews 10, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their heart and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I'll remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. So it starts off with like the writing is on the wall. Like Jesus can come and he can bring judgment and he can say, you've been weighed, you have been measured and you've been found wanting. Like a story in a knight's tale. It's like, that's the whole thing. It's like, you have been weighed, you have been measured and you absolutely have been found wanting. Or like Jesus, he can come and actually kneel in the sand and say, like, my mercy is going to triumph over judgment. I know where you fall short. I know where you have... And that's the culture that we want to create here. That actually, we create a culture where mercy triumphs over judgment. We know that we are being built up. We know that we, we need to find ways to communicate it to each other. There's a life worth living. We're going to learn to actually give our pearls to each other. And actually sow into each other's lives. But to do that, we need to actually take the log out of our own eye first. And that's what God is busy doing. As we pursue him, he's actually writing his law on our hearts. And he's transforming us. That, that, that word that I, I, I repeatedly pray for you guys and for us is that I, I'm, I'm in anguish until Christ is formed in you. I'm in anguish because like, actually, I just want Christ to be formed in you. He's the, the ultimate example of the ultimate hero, the sacrificial servant, the king who left the palace. It's like I was saying, the, the ultimate sacrifice is actually, will you lose for me? Jesus was the ultimate person who lost for us. He lost his life. He lost the, the heaven. He lost his crown. He lost his glory for us. That's the way you prove that you love somebody. It's not that you come down and I'm going to win. I'm going to just dominate the world. He won by losing. He actually said, I'm going to lay down my life for you. That's how he wins over his bride, which is us. And that's how he starts winning us over and writing his law on our hearts. So that we can actually become like Christ. Lord, I... Pray that you would help us to understand this. Help us to, to realize that there is a judgment coming. And yet, in another way, we've already passed through judgment because we can accept what you have done for us. Think of everybody that's in pain and frustrated with people that have hurt them, longing for justice. Actually, what they're doing is they're walking around with unforgiveness in their hearts that's trapping them. They might be angry at somebody. They might be angry at you, God. But I pray that you help us to actually let it go and to forgive, to realize that you are the judge. You are the ultimate authority. You know perfectly what we need and what we don't. You know what's gone into it. That desire for justice is good and it's right and it's healthy. But we need to trust you for that justice. 
you are the judge. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to understand who you are making us into as a church, as individuals, that you want Christ to be formed in us. Christ-like husbands, Christ-like wives, Christ-like sons and daughters of God. I pray you'd help us to hear your voice saying, actually, you have been weighed. You have been measured. And you have been found wanted. It's like, actually, I want you. I want you so much. I am going to come and lay down my life for you so that you can be with me, so that you can be in the fellowship with God the Father and God the Son and the Holy Spirit in a divine dance that we will place the Trinity at the center of our lives and let everything revolve around that. Lord, thank you that you have invited us into this incredible participation with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.